Hey Vancouver, how are you? I'm Mike Howell and welcome to another episode of 12th and Canby, the podcast. My guest in studio today is Vancouver City Manager Sadhu Johnston. He's been on the job for a little over a year now, so I thought I'd bring him in to answer some questions. We talk about the city's housing strategy, why bike lanes are plowed after a snowfall, and the one issue that has really upset the design community in Vancouver, that would be the city logo scandal. So here we go. Let's hear what he has to say. Good morning, Mr. Johnson. Thanks for coming in today. Absolutely. Nice to see you. So budget day in Ottawa, what has uh, Vancouver asked for and uh, what are you hoping to get? Probably top priority would be transportation investments. Yeah. The the mayor's, regional mayor's plan has obviously got uh, Surrey, Broadway corridor transit and uh, investments in increased bus and overall transit service. So that's yeah. probably number one. Yeah. Housing would be number two. Um, I mean, they're both equal priorities in terms of the need. Um, yeah. We'd be looking for, obviously, the, uh, the the feds have been indicating uh, strong investments in housing, but they haven't uh, completed their national housing strategy yet. So everyone's waiting to see where that lands. So we're looking for support in those two areas. Uh, obviously, we're looking for increased investments in addressing the opioid crisis, um, homelessness. A lot of challenges that... Uh, cities are facing across the country with uh, the last 10 years of federal investments continuing to decline. So, uh, you know, they're also recognizing that they're needing to balance their own financial challenges with the economy. And so, you know, not expecting everything to come through funding. Yeah. It could be policy and other tools, ways that they can support municipalities. So have you had any indication uh, from any of the people that you speak to in Ottawa, like what's coming? We don't. Uh, we don't know. I mean, no. We've certainly heard various things from different people that we talk to, but it seems like uh, everyone's waiting to see really what what is presented today. And what's been your relationship uh, with the new government compared to, say, the Harper government? Well, it's it's been really encouraging, to be honest, just to be able to have a dialogue with uh, whether it's uh, people here um, representing the federal government or actually going to Ottawa and having meetings. So we've had uh, delegations, city delegations going to Ottawa and talking with them about transportation and infrastructure, certainly on various other issues that are priorities to us, life safety issues and whatnot. So that's been really, really good dialogue and um, separate from any funding, just being able to have an open conversation around the challenges that we're dealing with, for instance, on the opioid crisis and being able to have the health minister here and meet with first responders and talk about the challenges that we're facing arts, culture, investment. So it's uh, it's a really, it's a good dialogue. There's clearly more recognition of the role that cities play in creating a vibrant, dynamic economy and, and good quality of life for Canadians. There's a high percentage of Canadians that live in cities, and cities are an important part of achieving any kind of federal objectives. And it's nice to see that they recognize that and that we can work together. Yeah, they've made a lot of promises. Um and I know that uh, the city uh, is in the midst of working out a housing reset. Maybe we might hear a little bit uh, more about that later this week. But how much of the housing reset depends on federal money? That's something that we're we're looking at as we look at the reset. 
Yeah. We've, um, in the past, if you look at housing across Canada over the last number of decades, in the 70s, there was a lot of investments through CMHC. And you see a lot of the co-ops that got loans, a lot of support. Mm-hmm. That obviously has gone down. Meanwhile, real estate values have gone up. And so we've really been crunched, not just for homeless folks and for the very, very low income, but for the middle income people, both here in Vancouver and in other cities. And so we're looking at uh, working with the federal government and the provincial government to look at tools to to really deploy what housing there is more readily, like the empty homes tax that we've pursued. Right. So, you know, I don't think that uh, we, being government, can spend our way out of this crisis. We need to be looking at all sorts of tools and finding ways to bring in a greater diversity of housing types. Uh, For the first time ever, we, we actually have built a model for housing in Vancouver, we worked with Ernst and & Young and, and had them model the next 10 years of, of housing need in the city yeah. and uh, looking at the housing supply that we see coming online. I mean, there's, there's tens of thousands of units that are in the development stream. And so we're looking at, well, what's in the stream? Who's that going to serve? And what we're really seeing is that it's not a supply necessarily, a supply problem. It's, it's a supply for who. Mm-hmm. Who is that housing being designed and built, marketed for? And what we're finding is that it's there's there is a gap. There's the missing middle. There's folks that are the middle class that are looking to stay here. They're they have good jobs and they want to stay in Vancouver, and there just isn't enough product for them. And that may be rental product. It may be other ways that they can get into housing in Vancouver. So we're looking at all sorts of tools that we can utilize to to get that housing built in the city and and accessed for folks that need it. So what are, what are residents going to see in this housing reset specifically? Is there going to be any radical changes that, uh, that residents can expect? Well, the first thing is what we're going to be sharing next week with council is the, the analysis that we've been doing around the next 10 years. What is the supply that's coming in? What's the expected need? What are the gaps? Yeah. And uh, then we're, we, we'll start the conversation next week with council around what are some of the ways that we can start to address that gap. And then we want to go out and talk to the public about that. Yeah. Cause it's, there's been a big change, at least I've observed over the last year yeah. from the public. It used to be a lot of people saying they didn't want new projects in their neighborhoods. And now we have people come into council, come into public hearing saying we need more housing. We need more projects in the city. And so that, that dynamic has changed, and we're hearing it even like the character homes work that we've been doing. We've been out consulting with the public, mm-hmm. and we heard loud and clear we we want more interesting alternatives to bring different housing types into our single family zones. Yes, we want to protect those character homes, but we want to do it with introducing secondary suites and laneway homes, and find more ways to uh, introduce housing types that will accommodate more people on those single family spots. So I think there's uh, overall. There's been a change in the last couple of years on, on what we're hearing from the public and the housing reset in the next few months is going to be a chance for us to go out and talk with the public about some of the directions that we're seeing, like providing more interesting different types of housing options in single family zones, more density around transit. Uh, certainly we want to provide more of the station area plans like we did with Joyce last year. So finding ways that we can use the, the tools that we have as a city to bring in more housing to fill the gaps that we're seeing across the city. Now, I know, I, I believe uh, Gil Kelly mentioned uh, at council a couple of weeks ago that there's going to be uh, no limits on the size of homes that are going to be allowed to be built, meaning there's going to be no downzoning. I think the term was used. I think a lot of people were surprised by that. Why, why is the city taking that approach? Well, the original, um, on, this is on the character homes that yeah. you're referring to specifically. Yeah. 
the uh, we went out to consult with the public about different options that we could utilize to preserve those character homes. One of the options that we included was basically a downzoning that said, if you're not going to preserve that existing character home, yeah. the home that you replace it with would be smaller. And what we heard loud and clear from folks is, we don't want that approach. What we want is more of an incentive type of approach, which is if you preserve that character home, you can do a secondary suite. You can do a laneway home. You can find ways to bring more housing options onto those sites rather than less. And that was kind of a resounding message that we heard from the public consultation. And so you know, our jobs are to craft policy, talk to the public, hear what they have to say and revise it. And so we're going to keep doing that with the character homes work. And it's Three years ago, there was a major drumbeat. You know, we're losing character homes. We still have that drumbeat, but we also have an even stronger drumbeat right now saying, and we need more housing options for, for everybody in Vancouver. And so the work that we have before us that, that Gil was talking about, our planning director, on on the character homes work is to, to say, okay, how do we do both of those things? How much of the housing reset focuses on eradicating homelessness? Homelessness has been a real challenge for us both in Vancouver and in the Lower Mainland. We did a launch a task force with other municipalities in the Lower Mainland last fall. And as a part of that, we surveyed municipalities across the Lower Mainland. We found that there are over 70 homeless encampments at any given time across the Lower Mainland. This is not a exclusively Vancouver or Surrey problem. This is big, small cities. So we really need a regional approach, which is our, this is our first time working that into into our work it's rather than we the city of Vancouver working on a program that's with right. restricted within our boundaries so it, it really do, we do need a regional approach we need a partnership with the province and uh, the housing reset um, clearly continues to prioritize that in the past much of our housing work has focused on the very low income mm-hmm. that is one part of our work we we're really looking at the, the the tools the options that we have to bring in more affordable housing that's attainable to the middle classes across the city and to, to different types of folks. And so we're looking at city land through Vaha we're developing. Yeah. We've got about uh, almost 1,500 units that are under development now. Um, so we'll be allocating new sites for Vaha to, to develop. So we're looking at how do we leverage city land. We're putting some significant city sites on the market that uh, would hopefully leverage uh, more housing mm. of different types. So I think we're going to be looking at all the tools that we have from a regulatory perspective, from a land perspective, and then also looking to partner with BC Housing, the province, the, the federal government, to to do more on the on the housing front, on the helping people that can't afford the the, the rental market. I, I I get you on the fact that you with this reset, um, you know, you you want to include a, a lot of different income levels, but when uh, homelessness is at its highest ever recorded in the city, it seemed that that would be a big focus of the yeah. reset. It is a big focus still, um, and it's uh, it has been a focus for a long time. So what we're what we're doing is bringing additional areas of focus into this. So it's it's in no way minimized or reduced our our effort, our level of effort on it. Um, we continue to really be focused on it, and we recently took a. a um, a delegation down with BC Housing, Vancouver Coastal Health, VPD, and the city down to Seattle to look at their homeless problem. Mm-hmm. We have, um, as of the last count, about 500 people on the living that are unsheltered. There, it's about 3,000. Yeah, 
And so it was, uh, and you look at New York and LA and many big cities across North America, we're, we're not alone in struggling with this. And we're really trying to learn from those other places. One of the things that we saw that Seattle had done is many of the SROs had closed yeah. over the, uh, the last number of years. And so folks that were living in that form of housing um, didn't have a place anymore. And so re- we really need to be looking at how do we protect that and improve it, make it a better place to live for people who coming off the street that they can find that housing as a, as a, as a good option and then ideally move them out into better options as they stabilize. And so that will remain a major focus for us in the modular housing that we launched this year as an example of ways that we can do that cost effectively. Yeah. You mentioned SROs um, and you're probably aware the Carnegie uh, community action project released its annual report hotel survey and that they do um, every year. And they found that the average rent in an SRO is 548. And when you do the math and the shelter rate is 375, that doesn't leave uh, much. What are you doing about this? Because it's year after year that uh, we hear these really depressing statistics from the Carnegie people. Well, for the ones that we own, we're doing everything we can to keep them in good shape yeah. um, and to try to use it as a, as a ladder to get people into better housing, more secure housing, longer term housing. Firstly, just to recognize that uh, it is it is a major challenge, and we, the city, can't solve it alone. And we, yeah. There's a lot that we can do. Um, the regional homelessness task force that I mentioned, one of the key recommendations was we need a provincial poverty reduction strategy. Yeah. Uh, we need we need welfare rates to increase, and the, there's a lot that cities can do. We can't do this alone. We need partnership with the, all levels of government and the nonprofit community. So uh, more enforcement on SROs. We've got we've been funding some uh, retrofits in SROs. We're trying to improve that housing stock. Trying to provide through partnership with BC Housing more opportunities for people to move out of SROs into more permanent housing, which frees up space in SROs. It uh, it is the, most of them are pretty run down buildings. So enforcement is key, and it, it is hard for those landlords to keep the buildings up in good good running order. And so that that remains a, a constant focus for us. I know there's a bunch of recommendations that are in that report aimed uh, at municipal government, but uh, might get to those uh, at another time. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about marijuana. I know that the federal government uh, has talked about introducing uh, or, or legalizing and regulating marijuana and uh, introducing legislation this spring. And we're in the spring. We haven't heard about that. Um, meanwhile, the city continues with the business licensing um, scheme. Mm-hmm. How's that going? Well, in some ways it's going well, and in other ways it's a real frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, the years leading up to our regulatory approach, we were seeing virtual exponential growth in the number of dispensaries across the city. Yeah. And that was creating a lot of concern for the community, and it was, it was really haphazard. They were going close to schools. They were, it was just really anywhere that they could find a location. You might find on one block four or five of them. Yeah. So the, our regulatory regime... While it came before a federal approach, it was really a, a way to stop that growth and try to curb that and have ones that were too close to schools, the ones that were too close to each other to, to, to shut down. Mm-hmm. 
And um, we've been somewhat successful. A number have closed down and a number have not. And so we're pursuing legal action with those and, and pursuing injunctions to force them to close. That process takes longer than I would like for sure. So it's yeah. it takes a lot of staff time to go and ticket them and, to, and then to pursue legal action. And so the regulatory regime has worked in curbing the number of them that were that were uh, we were seeing in the city. We haven't been as successful as I would like in closing the ones that don't meet our regulatory requirements or that, that aren't pursuing that. And that, that is very frustrating because yeah. it takes a lot of time to ticket them and then they do or don't pay their tickets. And then, but they're still making money. They're still in that community, maybe too close to another location, uh, another dispensary or too close to a school or whatnot. And so that's, uh, that's definitely something that we will look to have some federal guidance on because right now it's it's really across the board with each municipality taking different approaches and you saw a raid in Toronto and Toronto police here yeah and so it's just the the fact that it's a patchwork across BC and across the country is doesn't help much either yeah well um last count i believe there's only nine dispensaries in in town that have been licensed by the city i think there's four or five compassion clubs and the rest are retail outlets I think you've issued 1,300 tickets, uh, which seems like a crazy amount. Uh, I wrote this down, 27 court injunctions that you've gone to court with. We're we're going to court. We're waiting for court dates on those. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it doesn't seem like it's working very well when I – and there's like 50 or something that are still subject to enforcement. It seems like a a lot in the city. Well, I guess Mm – I mean, what I said a moment ago is – what has worked is that it's curbed the growth. It was virtually exponential growth. Uh, yeah, had about over 100 the, or so. Yeah, they were they were really increasing over the few years here. And so it, it has been successful in reducing that that considerable growth that we were seeing. We haven't been successful yet in bringing them all into compliance. And that's why you know, we're going to the courts and we're looking for some federal guidance on on what's going to happen. There is a little bit of a wait and see here within yeah. industry and, and uh, waiting to see what kind of teeth the feds are going to provide and how much of this will fall on municipalities versus right. on the provinces or on the federal government. So what we've been really trying to do is to stem the tide of more dispensaries opening and recognizing that, that it is uh, it is going to be legalized and it does serve a purpose. A lot of people that that benefit from medical marijuana and so we want to provide a regulatory regime that uh, provides security for where they're going to be and make sure that they're, they're complying with those. So I want to talk to you about fentanyl and overdose um, crisis here in the city. Uh, the latest stats that you guys have sent out shows that uh, it's getting worse. You've spent some money on this already. I mean, how much more money is the city prepared to spend on, on fighting this with no solutions uh, in the foreseeable future? It's heartbreaking to see the carnage and it's frustrating on the city side to be at the end of that pipe mm-hmm. because we don't really control a lot of the front end of that uh, we do have regular engagement with vancouver coastal health and and our partners and i've got a weekly call with vancouver coastal health where we we talk and you, know, you mentioned yeah. you had patty in your, um, yeah, patty in your podcast Daly. yeah chief medical health so i think we've got a really good partnership there and uh, we've really been focused on trying to get better data to understand the, s- the scale of the problem. Council did approve an additional $3.5 million in funding to address this. Again, most of that is 
to support first responders, be they in the nonprofit sector, volunteers, fire, or others, to help to address the, the strain that this is causing on, on all those folks that are on the ground responding to it. As you saw a couple of days ago, we, we did put a call out to look for more treatment, and yeah. we're seeing that uh, there are some examples of treatments that are working. Mm-hmm. And so we, we put a call out that the, the, the $10 million that was allocated to BC be um, invested as soon as possible into more of the alternative treatments because those, those can work. There are people that are ready for that treatment. So we're at the end of the pipe trying to clean up and, and support first responders and, and putting funding into destigmatization and putting funding into nonprofits going into SROs and housing for education and naloxone training and that kind of thing. And ultimately, we, we need to find ways to get more people off of the, that illegal drug and uh, onto some stabilized treatment so that they can get their life back on track. Now, the mayor, I spoke to him a couple months ago and asked him about um, all the uh, SROs that the province owns in the downtown east side. And he was calling on the province to have injection rooms in all the government-owned SROs. Now, I know that the city has at least six SROs. So is there any movement from the city to open injection rooms inside its own city-run SROs? It's something we've been looking at. Uh, We haven't had any deaths in, in any of our facilities. We've been training our staff and been working very hard to ensure that we are doing everything we can. We um, At this point, we haven't seen a need to do that. What we're seeing is process that we're undertaking in our own facilities at this point seems to be working. And uh, you know, we recognize that each one of those facilities needs to be staffed. We need Vancouver Coastal Health and the province to, to, to jump in and provide nurses and whatnot. And so they're they're going to they're providing those services in the locations where they feel that they really need them. And and they're, again, on a weekly basis, we're looking at where are the ODs, where are the deaths. And as you've indicated, the majority of them are inside in SROs. And mm-hmm. so um, through our partnership with them, we're looking at really prioritizing the places that, that need it. Okay. Okay. It's time to take a quick break so we can hear from another one of our podcasters here at Glacier Media. So we'll be right back with more from Sadhu Johnson. We're not like the rest of the country. Separated from everything east of us by the Rocky Mountains, fronted to the west by ocean, and to the south by an international border, we have a history and a culture that's all our own. It's different here, and it's that difference that we explore on This Is Lotus Land, a podcast about people and their lives in BC's Lower Mainland. Whether it's the history of gangs in East Vancouver, taking the bus to the North Shore, or the time Fidel Castro landed in Richmond, it's about stories that aren't going to be told by Toronto or Montreal. You can find me, Barry Link, and this is Lotusland at pressplaynetwork.ca and on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. That's This Is Lotusland, telling unique stories about our part of the world, one difference at a time. Okay, we're back with Vancouver City Manager Sadhu Johnson. I want to talk to you about Kinder Morgan. I know that you guys have spent a lot of money fighting this proposal. How much have you spent? Well, the majority of our effort has been in staff time. Yeah, um, you've hired you hired some experts though at one time. We did, yeah, yeah. yeah we spent a, a few hundred thousand dollars on expert studies and analysis. 
Yeah. And um, what we've, you know, we, we were finding it frustrating that the, the data, the analysis that was being provided was, was really all funded by Kinder Morgan. Yeah. And so uh, over the last couple of years, as council directed us to be interveners in the process, we did bring in some experts to help us analyze the potential impact. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the conclusion from that was that this proposal wasn't in the best interest of, of Vancouver yeah. and that there were considerable health and environmental risks with the project. And that's the, the submission that we made as a part of our intervener status with the NEB. So you've spent a lot of staff time, uh, been at council numerous times where this uh, topic has come up, and now the city's looking at seeking a judicial review. So wondering why you're taking that route when you've had the National Energy Board uh, approve this, uh, you've had the Prime Minister and his council approve this uh, with conditions attached, of course. So why do you why do you want to bother to seek a judicial review when it seems like... Uh, this maybe is a fight not worth fighting? Well, that, that decision ultimately comes down to council. Mm-hmm. And that was a motion that was led by a councillor, and it was a direction that was provided to staff by council. And so our my job is to implement council's direction. Right. And so council had uh, given us the direction to pursue uh, that with the, the provincial decision, which is something that we're exploring right now. That process is what uh, really um, impacted Northern Gateway and uh, and the project there. So you know, I think our council really wanted to make it known that they had concerns about the environmental and health impacts of the project, and they wanted to do what they could through uh, through this process to to have a say about the concerns that that they have about it. Okay. Well, I know a couple of years ago the the city also got involved in the uh, yes side of the transit and transportation referendum. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to one longtime senior staffer who told me that it was the first time that he was allowed to wear a, a political button, like a yes button, mm-hmm. on his jacket as a member of the city of Vancouver. So when you consider the efforts on um, the, the city's efforts on Kinder Morgan, um, on the referendum, you seem to be more involved in uh, kind of the political side of things, taking a position on politically sensitive issues. Well, the referendum, um, there's there's no doubt that we need public transit in this region. So uh, I guess I'm reluctant to call that political positioning. For many decades, the city government and the elected officials have advocated for transit and transit funding, transit-oriented development, and really allowing for our community and our region to to grow um, and to grow without... um, needing a really car-oriented um, community, allowing people to, to get out and walk and bike and not have to spend money on gas and parking and whatnot. So that's mm-hmm. that's been a long-term position of the city. And so I don't, I don't see that as, as us being politically active so much as it is us advocating for what is important infrastructure. Ultimately, that probably wasn't needed as as... A referendum. It's, right. it's, I think there was some concerns raised about: Do we really need a referendum for this? Do we recognize regionally we need transit, and we got to find the best way to do it? And right. That's the track we're on right now. Right. So, and with Kinder Morgan and, and other and other positions, um, you know, we 
as staff, we take direction from council. Council yeah. tells us to pursue a policy. That's what we do, and we do it wholeheartedly. And if, yeah. um, if they tell us to pursue um, an injunction or an intervener status, that's what we do. If they tell mm-hmm. us to do research, to evaluate a proposal like the Kinder Morgan proposal, we bring in the best experts we can, and we get the best analysis that we can, and we bring them our observations, and ultimately they, they make a decision. This is a democracy. It's what's so amazing and great about Vancouver. People can come to city council, express their opinions. Councillors can express their opinions, and they, they vote as a body, and they direct us to pursue directions, and that's what we've done with Kinder Morgan. Okay. I want to switch gears, pardon the pun, a little bit here, talk about bikes. The 10th Avenue Bike Corridor, I know there's a, a plan uh, in place. Uh, it hasn't come to council yet. There's been a lot of public uh, consultation about this. But uh, as soon as people hear that you're going to take away parking spots uh, in front of the hospital, the cancer uh, center, people got really upset about this, thinking that, well, you're going to put separated bike lanes there and take away parking spots. So maybe you can bring the listeners up to date uh, about that. I know that's one of the options is taking away some parking spots, but where are we at with that? Staff have uh, taken direction from council to look at the options to improve 10th Avenue. As, as you know, it's a bike highway. There's a lot, yeah. of, a lot of bikes on that, on that road. And um, so there's a number of areas where there are more challenging conditions, and the hospitals are certainly one. The, the road on 10th there is, is quite busy. You've got a yeah. lot of pedestrians and crosswalks and parking and loading zones. and So it um, certainly deserves a good look to figure out how to make that a better condition, not just for cyclists, but for, for pedestrians, for ambulances, for people trying to drop people off, that kind of thing. And uh, so um, we've been out in consultation and doing design and doing consultation and doing design. So what we do is we, we work with the, the public and stakeholders in those immediate areas. And um, in terms of the, the work with the hospitals, we've been working very closely with the facilities and uh, people and the, the administrators of the hospital to see how a design could improve the conditions that are there right now. There's, there's inadequate parking. There's inadequate loading zones. There's, so there's a number of conditions that we would like to improve as a part of the process. And there's a couple of lots there that are actually vacant and that we've proposed, well, why don't we just put some parking on here so we can drastically right. increase the parking in the precinct or at least keep it the same if we're going to take some off of the road. So, you know, each, each time we've made changes, whether it's on the Hornby bike lane or the Dunsmere bike lane or, or other areas where we've made changes, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of concern, and typically a couple months after the changes, people are pretty happy with it because we do have great staff. We bring in consulting design support, and we really try to come up with designs that address the concerns that are raised to us. And the last thing we want to do is to make it harder for people to drop off their grandma at the hospital or to uh, to get into their, their appointments, really, uh, or to make it difficult for ambulances to get there. The, the conditions are not great as they are, and so we're looking at finding ways that we can improve it. So we're looking at a couple of options. We're engaging with the hospitals, and we hope to come back in the next couple of months to council with some recommendations that I think will address the majority of the concerns. And ultimately, council will decide, is this is this a path that they want to go down? Mm-hmm. And one of the options, though, is to have a separated bike lane down there. As soon as people hear that, that's all they focus on. But uh, that's up to council to, to decide whether that's going to proceed or not. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. And the council told us to look at, is there a path to improve the, the corridor there to separate the, the cyclists from the road, uh, the, the cars, 
Um, and also, of course, the loading and, and pedestrian access as well. Many of the sidewalks are buckled up, and there's, there's a number of improvements that need to be made. So those are all things that we're looking at, and ultimately council will make a decision if they think it's in the best interest of that corridor. And, of course, you know the, the hospitals are a major stakeholder there, and we're working very, very closely with them to see if there's a design that, that they think will, will add value. Um, so I just wanted to get you on the record on this because whenever it snows in this town, uh, social media lights up with people saying, I cannot believe that the city is plowing the bike lanes. There's nobody on them. So what, just clear that up. What, what happens when, when it snows? Do you, do you, do the first plow head to a, a, a bike lane? What, what happens? Well, we've got a pretty robust snow plan. Yeah. Um, some years we don't use it at all, as you know, yeah. um, what we do is before the snow comes, we're working with the weather uh, uh, experts to tell us what they expect is going to happen. And then we go out and we do pre-applications. Usually it's a liquid that uh, de-icing agent, anti-icing agent, so that the, when the snow does come, it doesn't turn to ice right away. And so that's that's number one. And those are on all the roads. That's the, yeah. Those are the priorities. There's, there's key routes. And uh, we have a few vehicles that do bike lanes as well. It's different vehicles. They're, they're a smaller uh, machine that do plazas, the seawall, bike lanes. And they've, they've got a route that they do as well. And um, so they go out concurrently. There's about 40 pieces of equipment that we'll often deploy. A few of those do do bike lanes in the seawall. The majority of them do roads. And Really, what we're what we try to do is to make it easy for people to get around. Um, whether you're on a bus, whether you're in a car, whether you're on foot, whether you're on a bike, and that's uh, it's certainly um, the level of resource that goes into the bike lanes pales in comparison with what we're doing on the streets. There's obviously a few visible locations where people like to point out that we're right. we're uh, making. Uh, the bike lanes clear. There are people that bike year round, and and sometimes you know, that's the only way to get around because transit's not working very well, and you can't get you can't get around in a car very well, and so that's actually an efficient way to do it. And we are seeing year round cycling continuing to go up. It's it's healthy and and uh, and more convenient. So that's one of the one of the tools that we use is clearing those bike lanes. But it's certainly a very small percentage of our overall effort in responding to a snowstorm. Okay, one more question for you. Speaking of social media lighting up, when the city decided that it wanted to change its logo. Ah, wait, wait, waiting to see whether this would come up, yeah. Uh, people went nuts. Um, what, what's going on with the logo? First of all, why do you have to change it? It's the current city of Vancouver word mark, so it's basically the, the representation of the name of the city. And it was designed in 2005, yeah. And it's got this kind of lotus leaf thing on it. Yeah. And um, what we've been finding is that it's awkward to shrink down. And so much of what we do is in little icons. It's right. it's on your phone. It's on your tablet. It's on a website. And the design that we currently have, when you shrink it down to fit in that format, yeah. that little lotus leaf uh, design and the, the the wording, it's just really hard to read. It doesn't right. translate very well to a digital format. And so that was... Over the years, as I said to council, we've kind of been taking that off in certain circumstances and just using the lettering. That's mm-hmm. a little bit easier. The, the way that the lettering is, when you shrink that down, it's hard to read at times. And so what we, um, as a part of our report on the digital economy and, and the work we're doing in digital, last year to council, we said we're having issues with the logo. We're going uh, to refresh it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we we wanted to do a streamlined version. Didn't want to make extreme changes. We wanted to basically take off the the lotus piece so we could shrink down the the text and and make it a little bolder so it stood out in the. And uh, what we came up with, um, we thought was pretty streamlined, pretty affordable, and uh, not a major change. Right. Same, same colors. Um, and what what we heard loud and clear was that that there wasn't enough process. The public wanted to be involved in some way, and uh, that the overall design just wasn't something that people were inspired by. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, in discussions with the mayor and then with council, we decided to hold off using that uh, word mark while we engage further with the design community and see what more we want to do. What, what we're trying to avoid is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars doing a major rebranding effort. You know, we really were looking for a way to display the name of the city of Vancouver in a digital format that works better than what we currently have. And, and uh, we heard loud and clear people want more involvement. We want to talk more about it. And so we're exploring what that might look like. So when are residents going to get a look at uh, what a potential new design looks like? I'm not sure at this point, to be honest. What we thought would be relatively simple that not too many people would pay attention to has clearly gotten more interest. And so we're going to sit down with uh, the design community, some of the leaders in that community, and hear their thoughts on both the process and uh, and the end, the, the, the recommended design. And so we're going to have some of those discussions, and then we'll come back to council to propose a process for how we move forward. All righty. Well, thanks for coming in. I know that I've got a lot of other questions for you, as I often do. We can talk about the Greenish City Action Plan. We can talk about when you're going to get a new city hall, when are the viaducts coming down. <laughs> all the good there's, stuff. There's lots. Left so it all off. Maybe that'll be part two. But uh, yeah, thanks uh, Thanks for coming in. No, and, yeah. And uh, we'll Thank talk you. again soon. Well, I just want to say, as we wrap up here, you know, thanks for having me in. It's, yeah. uh, it's an amazing city. It's a great place to be. We've got a lot of people that really care about it. And uh, I certainly recognize we've got a long way to go to be uh, as great as we can be, but it's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to do this work. And so thanks for your coverage of it. Yeah, thanks. Okay, Vancouver, that's it for this episode of 12th and Canby, the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I always appreciate the feedback, so get in touch by emailing me at mhowell at vancourier.com. You can find me on Facebook and on Twitter. My handle is at Howlings. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Press Play Network. Have a great day.